Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is our episode for the month of May 2020, where our major topic for this month is a deep dive into a Doctor Who writer. This time it is Terry Nation. Rob, how are you? Hello, Dave. I'm very well. Hello, listeners. Uh, the month of May, Dave, uh, you and I both have birthdays in, don't we? Uh, I'm two days outside of May. You're two days outside? I knew it was close, because mine's at the very tail end of the month. And so mine's at the very start of June, so yes. I see. Birthdays are in the air. We're both Geminis. Isn't that interesting? That is right, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am very good. I am still in lockdown, as, as we were talking about off mic. We're working from home, basically, uh, as we work through this uh, interesting time in, in world history. Uh, yes, I'm in... Basically, my situation hasn't changed as well. I'm continuing to work. I'm very busy. I'm enjoying Doctor Who as a distraction, and um, I'm very thankful that things aren't as bad as they are for others, and yeah, look, you know, best wishes to all our listeners out there, wherever you are. I hope things are going as well as they can for you. Yeah, look, there's so much to say on the topic, but we're not a corona cast, I guess, so... No, look, we are we are escapism. We're, we're here to put our minds off the real world for a bit and talk about that wonderful sci-fi fantasy that is Doctor Who. And, well, if you want to talk sci-fi fantasy, Terry Nation, come on, what better topic? Yeah, exactly right. But before we get there, shall we kick off with some news? We shall. So I've got the first piece for us, and this is a piece of Big Finish news. We don't do a lot of this, but no. occasionally something from Big Finish piques our interest and, and we, uh, we decide we're going to mention it. And this is a case of an unmade script that Big Finish is going to create, written by John Lloyd, uh, famous as the creator of Not the Nine O'Clock News, co-creator of Spinning Image. Mm -hmm. He produced Black Adder. Uh, I suspect many, many Doctor Who fans will be familiar, if not with his name, then certainly with his work. A longtime friend of Douglas Adams. And it seems that back when he was actually living with Douglas Adams, they were you know young writers in a you know, probably a very small flat in London somewhere. Could you imagine that? Just a back. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> wow. You know, hanging, hanging out with Richard Dawkins and Lala Ward and all yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Peter Cook and Stephen Fry, you know, buying the very first apples in Britain, all that sort of thing. That must have been a pretty cool crowd. But we're digressing. But yeah, when he was living with Douglas Adams and Adams was working on Who. Lloyd apparently pitched a script called The Doomsday Contract, and it wasn't made at the time, but Big Finish has got it. Neff Fountain's doing a bit of an update, so you know, Big Finish offers it, and they're going to make it. Now, Rob, can I just read you the very brief synopsis for this, this yeah, story? Yeah, please. Earth, a small, insignificant planet, entirely devoid of intelligent life. <laughs> at least, that's according to the legal documents. The Doctor, Ramada, and K-9 find themselves at the centre of a most unusual trial. An intergalactic corporation want to bulldoze the planet for a development project. Mm. Only a previous court's preservation document is standing in their way. The Doctor has been summoned as an expert witness. If he can prove Earth contains intelligent life, the whole world will be saved. But with a fortune at stake, it was never going to be that simple. Mm. Sounds like something else, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound a bit like something else. <laughs> so that's very, very interesting. I can also kind of see why it probably wasn't made because Doctor Who is courtroom drama. I'm just not sure that works. Well, look at Trial of a Time Lord, Dave. Uh. Yeah, well, imagine, <laughs> imagine Trial of a Time Lord without the actual evidence. You know, literally the Doctor arguing over planning forms. I mean, mm. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about this, but really, really fascinated 
to know how it turns out. So I, I'll probably will pick this up. I may only ever listen to it once, but I'm, I'm really curious to see what this is like. But it's big finish, isn't it? They, for all the good they do at times, they also hoover up just anything and everything. I'm kind of glad they do in a way because it means they make something for everyone, but it also means they make some stuff that might not be so good. But look, we'll see what happens when it comes out. Yeah, definitely a, a curiosity at least. And yeah, I'll be waiting to see what happens. Hmm. Speaking of things that aren't so good, Dave, um, during lockdown, there's been this concept of Doctor Who lockdown and, you know, creatives getting together and, I don't know, live tweeting on shows or writing little short stories or, or just creating stuff, you know, to get Doctor Who fans through lockdown. And this video, Doctors Assemble, popped up the other day. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. You know I'm going to talk about it because it's in our notes here. Have you seen it? Until you sent me around your um, pitch for the notes, I had no idea this existed. Okay. Yeah, it's been a bit low-key. Uh, basically, it's it's a script with the fourth Doctor stuck in the time vortex somewhere, and he's talking to all his other selves, Doctors 1 through 13, all played by people who haven't played the Doctor on telly, uh, with, I guess, the exception of the first Doctor. Um, and, in fact, several of the Doctors uh, are played by... Um, John Coleshaw so it's I'll just say I I only got halfway through this Dave and I turned it off Uh, okay just not very well written or the the, the casting of the doctors didn't work or it was it was a number of things The, the writing really tries to hang off catchphrases and incidents from different doctors times Right. It's like the writer is almost like, oh, look how much I know about the show because I can use this phrase or I can mention this thing. Ha, I'm clever. And I was just rolling my eyes at most of them. And and John Coleshaw, he can normally do a great Tom Baker. His Tom Baker is, is legendary. I mean, he did those uh, prank phone calls as Tom Baker, you know, years and years ago, maybe years a decade ago, ago yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. more. Oh, know, 20 years ago, Could yeah. be 20 years. Do you, remember the one where he called Sylvester McCoy? And Sylvester said, have you been in the pub, Tom? Yes. (laughs) So, look, I know John Coleshaw can do a ripper Tom Baker, but he doesn't do it here. It sounds like a terrible parody of someone doing Tom Baker. And the Tom Baker Doctor is the main character in the thing, so I was put off by that. His Davo is even worse, just shockingly bad. Um, Conversely, his Pertwee is amazing. His per- okay. his Pertwee is almost note perfect in this recording, so yeah, the voices are a bit all over the place. The, the the premise was just a bit silly. I know it's a basic thing that someone's thrown together, but I just thought it was trying to be too clever and and whatnot. But look, it it is out there for people to listen to. So doctors assemble, look it up on YouTube. It might resonate with you. You might laugh at all the jokes, you know, dear listener. You might think the the voices are perfectly good. I think Coleshaw can do a lot better with his fourth Doctor, but that's just me. And uh, that's probably all I've got to say on that one. Well, fair enough. We'll move on then to my next piece of news, which also sort of follows this whole Doctor Who lockdown thing, and in particular, the various Doctor Who live tweets that I think neither of us and probably most of our friends haven't been following because they happened at about 4am yeah, in Australia. Yeah, just, just the wrong time of day, really. Totally the wrong time of day, but occasionally I, I sort of go through some of the tweets or follow through some of the ones that Twitter suggests to me and that people are commenting on. A couple of things came up out of one they did on Listen, which is probably my favourite story out of the Peter Capaldi era, Mm. competing with World Nuff and Time, you know, depending on my mood, I could go 
go either way, but it's a very good story, I think. One of Moffat's classics. Yeah. And Moffat took part in a live tweet of this. And a couple of things were mentioned here. He, he did mention that they had to cut a whole scene out of the story purely for the sake of budget. And it was all about going to this great big library, which had all this stuff that Torchwood possessed and there were dangerous texts and all the rest of it. And I just found it very interesting that we, we're very used to hearing about Terence Dix would all you know, tell the story about how, you know, he'd take a script and it says, you know, 50 soldiers come over the hill and he'd cross it out. Two soldiers come over the hill. <laughs> yeah. And it's just really interesting to hear Stephen Moffat say, you know, we had to cut a script because we just couldn't afford to build another set or do another bit of location filming. So it still happens today. But he also mentioned there there was a particular line that was a reference to one of my favourite Doctor Who lines from William Hartnell's Doctor in the third ever episode in An Unearthly Child, mm. where he says, fear makes companions of us all. And that's a wonderful moment. It's kind of the moment where the Doctor goes from kidnapper to colleague, or at least starts that, that, that journey yeah. with his companions, Barbara and Ian. But he mentions how in the episode, Hartnell actually says, fear makes companions of all of us. But when he put it in for Jenna Coleman to say, he wrote, of us all. Mm. And to this day, it's clearly still playing on his mind that he got that wrong and he remembered it wrong and all the rest of it but but I did think it was lovely for Stephen Moffat to just say that that actually was a reference to a lovely moment in Hartnell's time that I like yeah exactly right and you know he's he's a Doctor Who fan so of course that's going to bother him forevermore <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, final one from me a uh, quick one we here on the podcast folks get all sorts of stats about our listeners and we have listeners in countries you just wouldn't believe. We're quite big in Cyprus, for example. Oh, good. Uh, which, is, which is always surprises me. And uh, I guess this isn't too far removed. Doctor Who is actually quite big in Turkey. And uh, the BBC has recently sold all the Whitaker episodes to uh, a Turkish television channel. And uh, to actually lead into them, they're going to show, I think, all of Capaldi's final season over the course of an afternoon and an evening. So I thought, wow, this is this is quite something. I don't know if it's dubbed or not. I don't have information on that. But uh, Turkey seems to be, you know, really up for uh, for Doctor Who. Apparently, on the the Facebook page, if you looked at how where people are coming from on the official Doctor Who Facebook page, they represent the number six country in the world for people accessing that page. So wow. this is something I never would have known before. Yeah, I mean, you think of like the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand. These would be big markets for the show, but Turkey's up at number six. Well, there you go. I would not have expected that either, but. Look, Turkey needs some good news these days, and mm. hope, hopefully getting Doctor Who counts as that. I'm, I'm sure it'll entertain a lot of people there. That's really cool. Well, it is the Chibnall era, Dave, so don't go overboard. But Oh, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be positive here. Uh, should we move on, Dave? Uh, yes, look, one mini topic from each of us today, because we have got a lot to talk about with Terry Nation. It's a big career. Mm. One thing that I watched over the last couple of weeks and it does dovetail with our main topic here but I wanted to bring it out specifically was the Doctor Who and the Daleks movie mm. um, purely because I'd watched the Pink Panther the week before and was in a real 1963 sort of vibe and I thought oh, I'll go to the same sort of era and I'll watch Doctor Who and the Daleks because I haven't done that before and it's only 82 minutes so it's not mm. exactly taking a whole chunk out of my, my night um, thoroughly enjoyed it it was a video that we used to borrow from the video store back in the 80s. 
you know, time and time again as a kid, I would have known that off by heart. I loved it. It was amazing. And seeing it again and just seeing how it was all done was really cool. But something of particular interest, Rob, was because the movie basically follows the plot beats of the TV show very, very closely. Yes. All the cliffhangers are actually in the movie. So you can tell where episode one would end and episode two would end. So I actually made a note of the timing of all of them to see how long these episodes went for. Now, bearing in mind a Doctor Who episode minus credits is, what, 22, 22 and a half minutes? Yes. So part one, 18 minutes. Mm -hmm. About the same. Part two, 10 minutes. Wow. Parts three and four both go for 13 and 11 minutes. So... You know, way down there. Uh, episode five, seven minutes. Ha! Episode six, eight minutes. Episode seven, the finale, 15 minutes. So I just thought it was really interesting to see where they'd cut a lot of the story. And in some ways, it does make for a much tighter piece of, of narrative, and, and that works well for a movie. But on the other hand, all the stuff they've cut is some of my favourite stuff for from the, sh- the show, all this talk about um, the Doctor and, and Ian talking about what the Doctor's done and him being selfish, uh, those wonderful discussions about what pacifism really means and debating whether the Thales should fight or shouldn't fight, and all those sort of wonderful mm. moments are obviously all gone. All those character pieces are gone. So on the one hand, yeah, you get a, a tighter, action-packed little movie, but I think you miss out a lot of the heart of a story. And um, obviously, look, part five is where there's a lot of that. That's where they do sit around the campfire and plan and discuss. And yeah, you can cut that down to seven minutes if you want, but do you lose a lot of character? I would say yes. I find that a very interesting thing you've done there. And I've always felt the movie is very easy to watch compared to the television story. I always thought it was because it was in colour and it was just more entertaining to look at. But yeah, script-wise, that could be it, you know, very much so. Yeah, it, it is a very, very easy watch, but... I would say a less satisfying watch. But you're right, it's a fantastic spectacle. And Mm. it just amazes me every time I watch it. The Dalek City, the number of Daleks, the colour. It it, it really is just a wonderful piece of 60s British cinema. It really, really is. Yeah. Uh, For my many topic this month, Dave, I've continued Davo Fest. I still haven't finished The Last Detective. I've got a good way into it. But I've diverted off onto All Creatures Great and Small. And I know this is something you you watched when you were young too. Yes, that was very much a TV show that was um, appointment viewing in our household, shall we say. <laughs> and I've got to say, I've really been enjoying going back to the early episodes where, where I noticed so many of the scenes and the storylines because I had a compilation v- VHS of All Creatures episodes and so on. So some of it is very familiar to me. Some of it isn't. Some of it's quite new. Uh, and I'm not just watching for Davo. I think all the, the characters are interesting in their own ways. And it's actually got me a hankering to buy a book that came out uh, two or three years ago now called All Memories, Great and Small by yes. Milk Publishing. Uh, Milk obviously do a lot of Doctor Who related stuff and genre related stuff. And they did this All Creatures book. And I think I want to get it and, and sort of read up on what was happening behind the scenes and what they really thought and all that sort of stuff. Apparently it's a, a smashing book. Mm. No, I have very fond memories of All Creatures Great and Small. The The latest series I can remember reasonably well, because I would have been getting up to 10, 11, 12 by the time they were shown out here, because we did get them quite a few years, I think, after the UK did. Mm. Um, but even some of the early ones, there are just images that I really remember well. Uh, the 
not the cliffhanger, but I guess it's the final scene of one season before they all go off to World War Two, and Siegfried sort of sitting there very quietly and, and calm and thinking about what's coming. I remember that being a very powerful moment when I was quite young. And I have gone back and watched the first couple of series maybe four or five years ago, and it, it's it's a very lovely and very well done series. Um, I am reminded, of course, because Robert Hardy is the lead there, and mm. I'm reminded of the anecdote that Peter Moffat tells, who obviously directed a lot of Tom Baker, Doctor Who, and a lot of All Creatures, and he says, there are two actors who I worked with where you could tell when they walked in in the morning, you can tell from their mood what sort of day everybody else was going to have, <laughs> and, and they were Tom Baker and Robert Hardy. Interesting. Do you think Robert Hardy would have made a good Doctor? Yes. Yeah, so do I. And, and it's interesting, for folks out there who don't know, John Nathan Turner was working on All Creatures Great and Small in the early days, um, these first couple of seasons, maybe first three seasons, I don't know. And uh, that's where he found Peter Davison. I'm surprised he didn't sort of look at Robert Hardy and think he was a replacement for Tom Baker. Or maybe they were too similar in some ways, Dave. Yeah, and there's a lot of people behind the scenes as well, directors particularly, that John Nathan Turner also moved across some more creatures to Doctor Who. But the big question we have to ask... Mm. What did you think of Davo in this? I love Davo in this. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? <laughs> he's he's just, really good. He's just fabulous. He, I, I was reading the books at the same time, and in my mind, I don't know whether it was the book influencing the TV or the TV influencing the book, or, or you know, a bit of both. But to me, the the Tristan in the books was the Tristan on TV, and vice versa. Yeah, I think he's probably got the best character in terms of just fun to play in that show, and. I believe it is an example of one of those characters that was meant to just be there for a couple of episodes, have a few lines there, and then when they saw Peter Davison doing it, and also when um, Christopher Timothy had an accident and couldn't go out and do location filming for a couple of months, they've said, well, Peter Davison's just kicking it out of the park. Let's just really expand Tristan's character and make him a whole big thing. And mm. I reckon there are a lot of people that watched it for Peter Davison as Tristan. Oh, absolutely. This, this is Davo in his ascendancy. It you know? really is, isn't it? Yeah, it's just great. <laughs> no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I probably should check out a few of those myself sometime. I I do remember it very fondly. Yeah, I've I've got the big DVD box with everything in it, so it's about seventy or eighty episodes. Um, and I'm going to do the the big watch. I'm going to watch the whole thing. And somewhere, if I can find it, I may even tweet it out for you, Rob. There is a photo of me, aged eleven, standing outside of Skeldale House. Nice. So I will see if I can find that for you. Was uh was was James in at the time, or Alf? Alf, as I should call him. No, uh, I don't think so. This was probably two years after the show was cancelled, um, and there was a museum a couple of doors down. I think it was where you could go and see sort of some of the set pieces, particularly the uh, the vet's surgery they uh, took out and um, sort of put up in a little sort of music you know, three room museum or something. So we saw that. Um, yeah, I'll see what I can find. Oh, wow, Dave. Well, that's a pilgrimage I would love to do one day myself, but uh, we're not here to talk all creatures great and small. I guess we're here to talk Terry Nation. We are. So when we were discussing what topics to do this year in the first half of the year, we thought we really enjoyed doing our Terence Dick special last year. So let's pick another writer to do. And look, I'll be honest, I pitched to you, can we make it Terry Nation, please, please, please? And <laughs> you were very kind and you said yes. And um, that that was very generous of you. So I will say right up the top here, I am coming to this podcast and this topic with an agenda. Mm. Terry Nation is a favourite writer of mine, and I am coming here to give 
the case for the defence, if you like, of Terry Nation. I'm going to give my views. I'm going to rebut some views. And look, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying anybody's wrong. Yeah. I, I, I'm generally not. But if a few people perhaps leave here with a different opinion of Terry Nation or a better opinion of Terry Nation, or maybe they don't, but they've you know had some of their ideas challenged and give it some thought, well, that's what a podcast is for. Uh, so, look, Rob, that's why we're doing Terry Nation. Mm. So let me throw to you... Initial thoughts, memories, ideas, what comes to mind when we talk about Terry Nation? This is going to be an interesting episode, Dave, because I'm coming at this with a great deal of indifference towards Terry Nation. But that is something that's been changing over time, and I think that will become apparent through our conversation. And maybe my thoughts will be changed by by what you have to say in the course of this podcast. But anyway, your question is, you know, when did I first come across him and all that sort of stuff? I want to say, I think it might have been Blake Seven. Or Terry Nation's Blake Seven is the first really? time I sort of recognised the name. Yeah, or maybe roughly around the same time I was starting to read sort of Doctor Who reference books and it was like, Terry Nation created the Daleks. Is that Terry Nation who made Blake Seven? Oh my God, worlds collide. It was kind of around then, you know, probably through his three Tom Baker stories as a writer. It's... It's not something I have like a, a strong, oh, I, I know what I was doing the day they killed Kennedy. Well, I wasn't even born, but you know the kind of thing I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, I I don't have a really strong one on Terry Nation, and I do think it might be a, a Blake Seven-y kind of thing because I probably took more notice of Terry Nation's Blake Seven than I did of, you know, Doctor Who, Destiny of the Daleks by Terry Nation, you know, on a, on a different screen, perhaps. Yeah, I certainly, when I was reflecting on this, realised... He would have been one of the very first behind-the-camera names that I ever learnt in Doctor Who. Uh, Terence Dix would probably be the first. John Nathan Turner, maybe, would have been another one. Wow. Uh, but Terry Nation was one that was very, very much out there. I, I think I learned very early to recognise his name on the front of credits. Um, and you're right, you know, everything was Terry Nation's Blake Seven, Terry Nation's Dalek book, Terry Nation, Terry Nation. So I think it was... A name that was out there and, and of course he was famous for creating the Daleks mm. and even in early conversations in early fandom back in the 80s there was a lot of talk about Terry Nation let me say a lot of it very negative in terms of his work as I said earlier I grew up on the two Dalek movies yeah. uh, one of them we used to borrow from the video store uh, Dalek Invasion Earth 2150 AD I think it was the Sunday afternoon movie on Channel 7, maybe, <laughs> or maybe Channel 9, but we, we had an off-air recording, and to this day, I can still watch that movie and tell you exactly where the ad breaks were. And what the ads were. And what the ads were, yeah. It's so ingrained <laughs> on the memory. Uh, along with, of course, those 70 Dalek stories, because, of course, those Pertwee Earl Tom Baker repeats that we all talk about growing up on in Australia in mm. the 80s. I, I would have seen it in there. But, yeah, a very early sort of figure in the show's history for me mm -hmm. so when we talk about him you've said that you're a bit indifferent to him but are there any particular positives or features or or sort of dare i say tropes around terry that come to mind i think you know and here again i'm thinking more of blake seven but i think he could write a very hard kind of sci-fi that that certainly appeals to me maybe you could even call it a, a gun kind of sci-fi yeah you know, i don't i don't think he's a frock writer by any <laughs> By any means, <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know he writes 
adventure stories and that sort of stuff normally appeals to me i like that kind of stuff i'm a kid who grew up on star wars and you know shooting laser pistols and swinging lightsabers at people and you know chopping people's arms off and stuff that's my childhood so you know the sort of stuff terry nation writes isn't incompatible with that at all yeah so i wrote down two words in answer to this question i was doing my prep one of them is almost the first word that you mentioned as well and that's adventure Mm. and i think that whatever else you say about terry nation his sense of adventure is really really strong and uh when i put out a couple of tweets about this topic and some of the friends of the show people like steve from um uh, new to who or um a couple of the robs uh <laughs> mark from nudology pe- people that we engage with on social media yeah. they they also all made the point even though they were a bit negative at times about terry nation in some of their f- feedback and, and we'll talk about that in a moment they all said, you know, great set pieces, great sense of adventure, keeps the plot moving. And I think that's very true. But also imagination. Yes. I think he is a writer who gets science fiction and science fantasy. There's a wonderful interview with him. I think it's on the Daleks, the early years VHS that came out about 1992, I want to say, that sort of era, that includes an interview with Terry Nation. And he talks about how he loved doing Doctor Who because you could just let yourself go in science fiction. I always believe that the nice thing about being a science fiction writer is that you create a whole set of circumstances, a series of worlds, and you perhaps settle on one planet. Now, I've created that planet. I don't want science or people who are smarter than me to say, oh, no, that can't happen, that can't be, because it's my planet. I made it. Anything that happens on that planet happens because I say it can. So for this little time, you become God. And if trees talk, then trees talk, because I said they did. If, if, if rocks roll, then they roll, because I said so. And I think that that is a wonderful thing for a writer of Doctor Who to have, and we'll see that as we go through. My next question, then, is, this is a guy who wrote 11 Doctor Who stories. Mm-hmm. I, I would contend, and look, we'll get our views on them as we go through them a bit later in the episode, but I would contend that there are no clunkers in there and some absolute classics which is more than you can say for most writers. Frankly, as much as I love Robert Holmes, he had a couple of clunkers in that list. Yeah, true. Uh, so why isn't Terry Nation mentioned up there amongst the greats? <sighs> there are a few reasons, Dave, and I think we'll probably flesh them out to a great degree in a moment because I've jotted down some sort of areas we can cover. I've always felt he is a different kind of writer a different kind of personality to a lot of the other people writing Doctor Who. I always sort of grew up thinking Doctor Who was this cottage industry that was small and people, you know, jobbing writers would would write some fun sci-fi adventures and we'd watch our adventure of the week and that was it. Whereas he, particularly in the 60s and the early 70s, the, the way Dalek Mania took on and the money he made from it and the sort of lifestyle he led always seemed at odds to me with the way he everyone else in Doctor Who behaved and he came across as a bit of a wanker Mm. to me Uh, you know I think it's the is it that Wicker's World piece where he's he's tooling down his long driveway I think it's an E-type Jag you know and he he pulls up at this country house and he's got some Daleks inside the foyer and the foyer is huge the foyer is bigger than some people's flats you know, yes, and yep. and he's smoking a pipe, and it's just like, oh, you're a wanker, mate. You know, <laughs> I don't know whether it's an Australian thing, but it's like compared to say an Uncle Terence or even a Robert Holmes who loved to smoke his pipe as well. 
this lifestyle and and this money he'd made off the Daleks, and there's more to say about that, of course, when we start talking about Ray Kuzik as well. I never sort of warmed to the guy, and I never saw a lot of footage of him talking uh, about the show to see whether he was was actually a better spirit than than I was sort of you know taking out of those few clips I'd see of him. And I just had this sort of feel and perception that I didn't like the guy, you know, as, as a person. So, so let me say the summary that you've just given up there was very, very much the view that was right across fandom when I joined here in the 80s, right through the 90s until his death in 1997. And a lot of the obits that I saw very much took pieces of what you just said and, and took them in there. And there were a lot of fan legends and fan rumours that really sprung up around Nation that... I look back on now and I would contend are all really not fair mm. or at least need some defence given to balance them out. So should we, should we go through those, Rob? Yeah, I, I, there's probably, I don't know, two or three main ones that, that he was a, a slack writer or always wrote the same thing. They're almost two sides of the same coin, really. Well, what do you say about that, Dave, before I have my say? So... I think that part of the slack writer thing came from a couple of urban legends that actually weren't quite true. And a lot of it, I think, came from Black Seven. Mm. So famously, when Black Seven was commissioned and Terry Nation sold the concept to the BBC, he also agreed to write all 13 episodes of the first season, which was a ridiculous and phenomenal undertaking and actually was a record that stood, as far as we know, in science fiction at least, until... Uh, J. Michael Straczynski broke the record writing season three of Babylon 5. Mm, yeah. Where he, where he smashed the record, record in like Big 40 time, episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it was a long-standing record for, you know, 30 years, 20, 20, 30 years. There was a incident where Terra Nation was trying to get these 13 scripts done. The recording blocks were getting closer and closer. And when he submitted the script draft for episode 12... It, it was pretty good. Like, it wasn't as legend used to have it. And I used to be told, oh, he basically handed over two pages of notes and said to Chris Boucher, turn this into an episode. That, that didn't happen. Mm. He did actually hand over a proper draft script. But when they rang him and said, uh, okay, that's, uh, that's good, Terry. Uh, we need you to do some rewriting. He said, there are only so many hours in the day. Um, it's very straightforward, given the deadlines. You can have a redraft of episode 12, or you can have a draft of episode 13. Which would you like? Yes. So out of those sort of things, and also some stuff out of Dalek's Master Plan, which we, I think we'll perhaps address a bit more when we get to that story, mm. out of that did sort of grow this idea that old oh, Chris Boucher kind of wrote all these ideas from Terry Nation's notes and all the rest of it. That actually isn't borne out by the facts. Mm. Yeah, well, what about on uh, on Doctor Who itself, the, the themes? Like when he's writing these Dalek stories, he tends to go back to the same or a similar theme all the time. You know, even in the Pertwee era, you got the, the tiles popping up again, for example. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's one very clear example of that, and that's Planet of the Daleks. Mm. That said, though, Planet of the Daleks is 1973. That's 10 years after he first wrote the Daleks. And the Daleks had never been repeated. It wasn't available on home video. The chances are that the average 12-year-old watching the John Pertwee era was had not seen the Daleks. Mm. So does it really matter? I mean, yes, yes, it does in some ways, but hey, he picked a good idea from 10 years ago that almost none of the audience would have seen. In 1973, who cares? He does certainly have his tropes. You know, he, he loves a good countdown. He loves a bit of radiation. 
He loves um, <laughs> separating the Doctor in a certain way. Uh, he, he loves the, the reveal of the Daleks in the, in the part one cliffhanger. Yeah, that, that's okay. He's not the, the, the first writer to have his, uh, his tropes. He, he's very famous for them. Sure, I accept that he does overuse them, but I defy you to look at Death to the Daleks and Planet of the Daleks and tell me they're the same story. Genesis of the Daleks, famously, he did sort of try to sell them a, you know, a, a version of that again <laughs> and, and was told, you know, we've, we've bought this twice already, go away. And, and Terrence Dix and Barry Letts worked with them to create a new idea. And again, we'll, we'll definitely talk about Genesis when we get there. Mm. Um, you could say the same for Andrew Carmel. I mean, Remembrance of the Daleks and Silver Nemesis have a lot of the same plot beats. And Carmel says it wasn't because I just reused the ideas, it's just because my mind worked in a particular way and when it's saying, what's a really exciting thing to happen? Oh, this. And I think it's the same with Terry Nation. It's like, well, how can I make this more tense? I know, I'll have a countdown. The mind works in a certain way. So I offer a defence, but perhaps more mitigation this time. <laughs> well, some of what you were saying there seemed a bit a bit mercenary in terms of, lol, it's 1972 or 73, the kiddies won't have seen this, I'll just repeat it. You know, there's something mercenary about taking, you know, money for the same sort of stuff you've already written. And... Being mercenary is probably another accusation thrown at him, Dave, when it comes yeah. to Ray Kuzik and the design of the Daleks, because I have always thought, and this is, again, something I sort of thought individually and then I sort of saw it borne out in fandom a bit, I always thought the success of the Daleks was down to how they look. I think, you know, a war-ravaged planet, radiation, you know, two warring sides... That's been done to death a million times. I think the success of the Daleks were they were a monster that didn't look crap. And although Nation might have given some ideas as to what they could have looked like, the actual realisation of them is Ray Kuzik. And, you know, hearing that Terry was like, you know, I'll, I'll see you right, Ray. You know, yeah, of course we'll share these rights and all that sort of stuff. And Ray never got a, you know, a, a penny out of it. I, mm, I have issues with that. So I've got two points to raise on this. Look, I, like you, think that Ray Cusick deserves the credit he gets for the design of the Daleks, absolutely. I think it is a massive disappointment that he never really got the financial remuneration he deserved for it. I don't think it's entirely fair to write off Terry Nation's contribution to that, because I think some of the key aspects of the Daleks, particularly the shape, the way they move, the way they look, in terms of that sort of big picture, that was in his script. And yes, Ray Cusack made it work, he added all the details that we love, not diminishing his, his credits to that at all, but certainly I think Terry did put in some of the inspiration. I'd seen the Georgian state dancers, the Russian dance troupe, and the girls in the troupe did a wonderful dance. They wore long skirts that actually brushed the floor and they moved in tiny steps and they appeared to just simply glide around. I thought, what a wonderful movement that was. So that was part of the, part of the movement of the Daleks. So the Daleks were ballet dancers. <laughs> deep down where it really comes, yes they are. And I would also say it's not Terry's fault that that's the way that they contracted designers in the BBC in those days. You know, that, that's the way it worked. If you were a designer, you didn't get copyright of your work. That's unfortunate. But you can't blame Terry. Mm. The other thing where his mercenary reputation really comes from is that his agent, um, Roger Hancock, was notorious for ensuring that Terry Nation always got the money for the use of the Daleks and had the right oversight of the Daleks. Now, there's a wonderful little YouTube video that interviews Harl Nellison, who worked on Star Trek, Babylon 5, uh, a lot of other things, mm. arguably inspired the Terminator movies. We won't go there. <laughs> uh, uh, but he has a video there. If you look it up, it's called Harlan Ellison, Pay the Writer. 
I think Harlan Ellison makes the point that so often he's asked, will you do this as a freebie? Will you come along and do a DV commentary as a freebie? Will you come along and contribute to this as a freebie? And he says, well, is everybody else doing it for free? They said, oh, no, we're paying the directors and we're paying the actors, but we kind of thought that as a writer, you'll just come along there with the goodness of your heart and do it. And Harlan Ellison says, no, if you're a young writer out there, value your work. Tell them to pay the writer. You, you deserve credit for what you create. And, and there's this expectation that writers are all sort of lovely, beatnik, I do it for the uh, I do it for the love of the craft, in mm. a way that uh, you know you know no one would expect an actor to do it for free. Why should a writer do it for free? And I don't think it's unreasonable for Terry Nation to say, "Well, I'm I'm owed credit for what I was done. I'm owed a copyright. It's fair enough to say to the BBC, don't forget to pay me." And also, I think when you look at him and the way that he creatively protected the Daleks, and he was very careful about where they could be used and what they would be used for. Um, kind of, I think, in the model of the way that Walt Disney protected Mickey Mouse mm-hmm. and was very careful what Mickey Mouse endorsed or what Mickey Mouse bid on. That perhaps was very unusual and a bit mercenary for the 70s and the 80s. But you think about that in terms of showrunners and their content now, that's incredibly common. Showrunners are very protective of their work. JMS on Babylon 5, Joss Whedon on Buffy, they're very careful about where and how their creative works are used maybe Terry Nation was out of step with his times but the times caught up with him well that's what I was going to say I think he might be out of step with his time then it comes back to what I said earlier I always saw Doctor Who as this cottage industry you know jobbing writers all these other writers invented stuff that seemed to remain the uh, the, the copyright of the BBC I, I still don't fully understand how Nation got to keep a hold of the Daleks when other people invented stuff that became BBC copyright well, but at the same time, you had a story with the Yeti that was abandoned because um, Lincoln and Hazeman, they um, refused to give the copyright for use of the Yeti on the third occasion because they withdrew their script. Other monsters have, you know, couldn't be used because the writers refused to uh, give their consent. And famously, John Nathan Turner sort of saw this happening with companions, and he was so outraged that every time they used Nyssa in Doctor Who, they had to pay Johnny Byrne a fee for creating her, mm. that he always made sure that he created the companions from then on, so we didn't have to pay the writers this sort of thing. So, you know, Johnny Byrne was out there getting his royalty check every time Nissa turned up in a Davos story, but nobody says that's unreasonable. Yeah, I guess a uh, different profile, I guess, between Nissa and the Daleks. Yeah, and I think that's also the thing as well. Everybody wants to use the Daleks. Is it unreasonable for Terry Nation to say, well, you know, they're my creation. I want to make sure you're using them well. I, I want to see the script to make sure it's sort of in line with my vision of the Daleks. Now that wouldn't be out of line. But I, it, you're right, it, it probably was for the BBC in the 70s and, and the early 80s. But before he got to the BBC, Dave, he did a whole bunch of stuff. I was watching a YouTube video recently where he was talking about some some of his earlier work and I was reminded of just some of the really interesting stuff he was involved with before Doctor Who. Yeah, look, this is a guy who... Well, go back to 1956, he was working on the Idiot Weekly Price Two Shillings, hmm. where he was working with someone by the name of Spike Milligan. Mm, big name. Yeah, 1957, he did a, the Friday the 13th telly movie. He was doing Out of This World. He worked with Hancock, back on Hancock's Half Hour and all of those shows in 1963. This was a guy who worked with some of the big names of BBC television in the 50s and 60s. That's right, and it's actually his work with Hancock that was being referenced in this video I was watching on YouTube where he says he had a fight, uh, not a physical fight, but an argument over some of the writing with Hancock and uh, actually jumped on a train and was heading back towards London. 
and uh, was thinking, oh, geez, I've just turned down Doctor Who. Uh, I wonder if my my manager can get me back <laughs> on it now that I'm effectively unemployed now I've left Hancock. And uh, that's how his first gig came up. He'd, I think he'd been offered it and turned it down and then had to sort of come back cap in hand, or his manager at least, to uh, to get the gig. Yeah, and it's really interesting what you say there, Rob, because I think a theme that is going to emerge over time is his genuine protectiveness of his writing. I think that, that is something that does go right back to Hancock. But the other thing is that anybody who's sort of being employed in television at that time clearly had ability. And I think Terry Nation, right from 1963, when he first gets commissioned to do the Daleks, was known as somebody who could turn in a script and turn it in on time, on budget, so to speak, and it would be workable, you know, reasonably workable. And that's I mean, you know, we look at the history of Doctor Who and how often do we hear about scripts that didn't work and scripts that had to be rewritten and scripts mm. that needed the script editor to fix them. Terry Nation was kind of a reliable writer. And I think that's also in evidence as well. Yeah, well, he's been doing it for a, a decade at this point, essentially. You know, he's, he's not like the new writers that Cartmel brought on for season 25 and 26 who were no, just fresh, no. fresh out of a BBC course on how... On how you lay out a script, you know, uh, he he was actually a, a fully fledged writer at this point. So yeah, completely agree there. So look, let's work through his eleven ten if you don't count um, Mission to the Unknown as its own, but eleven Doctor Who stories. A couple of thoughts or points on some, maybe a bit longer on others. Um, obviously, the Daleks. And can I say, isn't it cute that Doctor Who magazine is still trying to pretend that? the first three stories aren't called An Unearthly Child, The Daleks, and Edge of Destruction. I think that's so funny and adorable. <laughs> Very good. But what do you think of The Daleks, Rob, the story? Look, we, we touched on this briefly in the in the episode when we're doing short topics. I think with a bit of trimming, which is what the movie version does, it can be a really rip-roaring, fast adventure. Obviously spread across so many episodes on television, it does drag in places, but as you said earlier, that helps flesh out character gives you some interesting scenes you might not otherwise get for me though i i always push back a little against longer stories in terms of episode length there are a few that just zip by and i'm really i'm like oh wow was that a six-parter i thought it was a four-parter but on the whole the longer stories i do get a bit bored in and i know it's the introduction of the daleks i know it's revolutionary in so many ways i know it's a special story it's not an amazing story though to me I really, really like it. It's one of my earliest memories of 60s Doctor Who because it did come out on VHS relatively early. And I uh, saw it then. I, I think I saw it for the first time in 1988 at a Doctor Who Club meeting where they showed it a very scratchy copy. This, to me, is a really good example of Terry Nation's work in that what I love writers to do in Doctor Who is create a world and a world that works and a world that has characters and it has history and it, it fits in everything. And he creates Scarrows so well. Mm. That imagery as they go through the, uh, the the jungle, the petrified jungle, the creatures that they find in there fossilised, then that wonderful city that they discover. Then you learn about the Daleks, then you learn a bit more about the Daleks, then you meet the Thals, mm-hmm. then you escape from the Daleks. And again, that, that adventure, the, 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 that's, you know, that, that stuff where Ian's inside the Dalek suit, that's a really memorable image that's right there at the start of the show's history then you get to philosophize with the thals then you get the expedition through the swamp then you get the actual battle at the end of it yeah absolutely you could trim it down and and there is a little bit of too much just talking sometimes or too much just stomping through the swamp but there's great characters and there's great set pieces and they're both things that i think particularly the set pieces are going to be hallmarks of terry nation's work and i'm very fond of it 
Oh, very good. Shall we move on to the keys of Marinus? One of his two non-Dalek stories, mm. and I love this one. I just think, again, I mean, he doesn't just create a one world. Well, he, he creates one world. He creates Marinus and then puts about five different locations over it. Each one of them is kind of interesting, kind of different. Uh, look, I would agree here that they are some of his shallower work and some of these set pieces, when you think about them too hard, they mm-hmm. kind of fall down a bit like the, the, the living jungle that's like, well, hang on, what? And why is it in there? And yeah. like the, the the ice soldiers, again, it's like, what? Mm-hmm. But if you're just watching that for a night a week and you just go, wow, there's a living jungle. Look at that. That's so exciting. Or, oh, my God, those ice warriors are coming to life and they've got swords and, oh, they've got to jump over the cliff and now the wolves are chasing them. Like, they're great adventures. I will accept, though, that you're right. Scratch the surface. There's not much underneath the adventure. (laughs) For mine, this is similar to The Chase for me, and we'll talk about The Chase in another couple of stories. Because it goes from place to place doing different things, my interest is really, really engaged in The Keys of Marinus. I think I first came across the story through a Doctor Who magazine comic strip where they had the Vord and the Vord were turning into Cybermen and something like that. Yeah, that was a weird strip, that one. It was a weird strip, but it got me interested in the Vord. Oh, where do these guys come from? How do they fit in? And then eventually I got to see Keys of Mariners. I thought, this is actually quite exciting and and interesting. And I think it does keep my interest through the jumping about the place. So, yeah, look, it's not a great story. And it's, it's a story that it's hard to say because I see a lot of fans sort of coming around to it in more recent times but it's traditionally not been a story that fans are like oh my god this is the must see Hartnell story it's not that at all but I've always quite liked it yeah me too I think it does suffer from being the non-Dalek one it's like Terry Notion wrote all these great stories and something called The Keys of Marinus mm. <laughs> so yeah. I think I think it comes to there but yeah there's a lot there but he next came back he was asked to do a sequel to the Daleks bring the Daleks back because they were so popular, and he does in The Daleks' Invasion of Earth. Rob, I love this one, but what do you think? Yeah, probably my favourite Dalek story of the 60s, right up there with The Chase, primarily because of the way they filmed in London and did that location filming. People who listen to this podcast will know I'm a broken record on location filming. It's not just the location filming here, it's the fact I'm seeing like an old 60s grey dirty London and I just love seeing that old footage the same as I like going on YouTube and finding footage of Sydney in the 80s and you know and and watching old news reports and I'm not looking at the news report I'm looking at what's happening behind the news report looking at what the buses look like or what the cars look like and all that sort of stuff and I just love 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 the look of that episode I know some of it's studio bound as well but there's some great location stuff. It's a great, big, epic story. Oh, big thumbs up there. Yeah, look, I think it's the best Dalek story ever, full stop, in the last 50-something years. <laughs> um, but but we're not here to review the story. We're here to look at Terry Nation's yes. contribution. And what I think he does very well here is, having been told, bring back the Daleks, there's this sort of sense of, well, I created a monster for a story, and I didn't really expect it to be anything more than one story that would be forgotten, but it's taken off it's it's gone viral as they say these days mm. and he sits and basically reinvents the daleks he sort of gets rid of their whole reliance on static electricity and being able to un- unable to leave their city which you know you kind of have to do if you want to have multiple <laughs> adventures with them so he does reinvent them but he he makes them incredibly powerful incredibly effective they they have invaded earth successfully by the time the doctor arrives these are not just 
oh look there's an alien invading and we'll you know we'll finish them off in 90 minutes mm. they are very very effective they're nasty and and you're right he takes the bigger budget and the chance to reuse them and just putting them into 60s london and using all of that world war Two nazi what if they won the war imagery is a really effective choice and i think it's a very clever way to ensure that the daleks can be now used again and again and again and that comes back to this youtube interview i saw with him where he's asked point blank you know because i guess by the time we get to genesis the nazi overtones are just there but it's sort of like terry did you invent them because of the nazis and he's quite honest and open there and says he's really not sure like that was probably an influence because he lived through that time and obviously it was it was a thing you know of course it would have influenced him in some ways but he wasn't trying to do it as overtly i think as we see or assume by the time we get to genesis so no i've definitely seen an interview with him where he says look bottom line i just needed a monster Mm, yeah that monster comes back again three times in two seasons in fact and we have the chase which for a long time in fandom this was really dismissed as the bad dalek story the one that you you could just sort of forget about because it's silly and it's not well made and Mm. it's not well directed and look it does have a lot of production gaps even by the standards of the 60s and the direction is very lazy in places (laughs) but it's a fun watch isn't it Fun watch, again, Kiza Mariner style, you're jumping all over the place, except here you're jumping from planet to planet and time to time. It's, oh, it just keeps my interest. And because it's silly, I find it an engaging and fun watch. It's not dreary and drab. It's 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 wonderful. Yeah, and look, you're right, Rob. It is silly in places and it has got a lot of humour in a way that the first two Dalek stories don't. But much of the silliness really is combined to those middle two episodes where they go to the fun fair and they go to Dracula's castle, whatever it is, and <laughs> the Mari Celestia. There's a lot of fun there, but the stuff on Iridius is pretty serious. And again, they create a world. And then the stuff on Mechanus, is, which, which is you know, two full parts, is also really good. And, and again, they create another world. They create an environment. Uh, we get our first iteration of the fungoids, which will uh, mm-hmm. come back a few times. <laughs> And, of course, we get bearded Stephen Taylor, who is the best kind of Stephen Taylor. Well, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he created Stephen Taylor and he got rights for that as well. I, I don't no, think so. I have no idea. No, I wonder. Uh, look, look. I think The Chase is the weaker of the 60s Dalek stories, but this is an example of if that's your weaker one, that just says how fantastic this, this group of stories is. Mm. Which brings us to Mission to the Unknown, a very uh, odd episode for the 60s, Dave, a one-off. Yeah, look, it is a one-off, but we recently got to see a version of it created by those students in um, one of the universities in the UK that I honestly can't remember, but we did speak about it on the podcast at the time. (laughs) I just think, once again, Terry Nation just creates a world that is perfect for an adventure. You've got spacemen on a mission, their spaceships crashed, You've got this horrible jungle. Again, a trope is developing here, but it's really effective. <laughs> he adds in the Varga plants, which as a kid particularly, that really terrified me. The, mm. the idea that all you need to do was prick your finger on the thorn and, and that was it, you become a Varga plant. And then he throws the Daleks in there. The Daleks win the day, which again is important. They have credibility. They win. And then we go away. I think as 25 minutes of space adventure, it ticks all the boxes I want it to tick. 
Yeah, yeah, well summed up there. I've got nothing to add. Of course, it leads into a much, talking of a very short story there, it leads into a epically <laughs> long story in the form of Dalek's Master Plan. So we probably do need to mention some of the controversy over this. And, and again, perhaps where that reputation for Terry Nation being a bit slack comes from. Mm. Again, when I was young in fandom, it was sort of said that Terry Nation started writing these, he got more and more bored and more and more disinterested. And in the end, he was just writing sort of one-page summaries and it was secretly all, all written by, you know, the, the script editor afterwards. In reality, though, now that we can actually see telly snaps and watch it, Terry Nation is only ever credited on episodes one to five and seven, which would suggest that there must have been some sort of formal arrangement that he was only writing half of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I suspect that was perhaps more of an arrangement that, than we knew about. But once again, I think if anything sums up his 1960 space adventure, it's the Daleks' master plan. Oh my goodness. You know, we go from Kemble, then we go to Desperus, and we've got the space agents, Brett Vian, you know, Nicholas Courtney, obviously. Um, the Daleks are always chasing, chasing us. They're just, you know, really, really close. We get to Myra, which is... Another wonderful jungle planet trope. Mm -hmm. uh, we meet we meet invisible creatures, the Visians. It's not the start of a trope there. <laughs> he creates Mavic Chen, which is a really good character. You know, when we did our podcast of decision with the guys from Forty Two to Doomsday, we had Mavic Chen in the top three villains in Doctor Who of all time. Yeah, and and, and a lot of our listeners also tweeted saying that he was on their list as well. So he creates a great character there that Kevin Stoney you know takes to another level, of course. This is just great adventure for me. I love it. I love the Daleks in it. So many Daleks. And my final point, Rob, because I know I'm talking a bit and I'll give you a chance to butt in in a moment. <laughs> um, but, but, but my final point is that you do see here the conclusion of his sort of four Dalek story arc where we meet the Daleks on an isolated planet, then they get to take over Earth, then they get time travel and they're chasing the Doctor through worlds, then they're about to invade the galaxy. And every story he takes the Daleks up a notch to the logical place, which is where we are in the Daleks' master plan, a massive empire ready to take over the galaxy. Yeah, and look, in some ways, this is similar to the chase. You've got Daleks chasing different locations, all that sort of stuff. But it's a lot more serious, is that, is that probably the best way to put it? Like, it, it takes itself more seriously, perhaps? I think we're obliged to use the word darker at this point, Rob. Yeah, that's fair. Normally I'd like darker, but I still prefer the chase over Daleks. Master right. Plan. Okay, okay. How do you feel about the way the Daleks are used here? I think they have their, their menacing hats on for this, which is entirely appropriate because I think in the 60s in general, I think the chase is the odd man out. You know, a Dalek story that's a bit more fun and, you know... I don't, I don't mind them in this, but as a story, yeah, it's maybe just a bit too serious, maybe a bit too long. I don't know. Okay, well, look, I, I like it, but uh, I, I, I do understand where you're coming from there. Mm. Um, a story he didn't write, but we should probably mention is Day of the Daleks. Again, fan legend versus reality is important because when the production team, Terrence Dix, Barry Letts, decided to bring the Daleks back to launch season nine, which is an obvious thing to do. The, the legend was that when Terry Nation found out, it was kind of lawyers at 12 paces and ready to sue and all that sort of thing. 
you listen to Barry Let's Talk About It, and it was much more a case of, um, hey, guys, uh, thank you very much for using the Daleks. Don't forget to pay my rights. And you know what? If you want to use the Daleks, like, I'm here. I'm happy to write your scripts for you. Let, let's let's talk about this. Let's let's do a story every year. And they said, great, you know, we'll use a, we'll do a story every year of the Daleks. That's That works well for us. And, yeah, if you're going to write it, Terry, well, you're the expert. Let, let's do this sort of thing. And it was it was certainly the way that Barry told the story later in his life a lot more collegiate than we were led to believe back when everybody was, you know, hating on Terry Nation because he was a bit of a wanker. Mm. And certainly Barry's got nothing to lose at that time of his life and his career to to not tell the truth. So I think we should take that as pretty factual. But they did take Terry Nation up on his word and they did offer him the chance to write the next Dalek story in season 10, Planet of the Daleks. Now, Rob, you mentioned this with a couple of barbs earlier so uh <laughs> would you like to go further i i'm not a huge fan of this dave i i feel it just treads over some old themes it, it's not doing anything incredibly new we've we've got guys crashed on a planet we've got the the thals getting about it's just uh oh, i don't know where to begin invisible daleks people in those purple purple blankets uh, uh mm, yeah my my brain is falling out of my ears as i think about it i'm i'm not a fan of this at all and when pertwee gets in that bloody balloon at the end oh my god just make it, it stop it definitely is terry nation by numbers you can check them off we have the jungle planet we have invisible monsters we have somebody's infected with something we have the Doctor separated, we have the Daleks revealed at the part one cliffhanger, we have a countdown, we have bombs, we have thals. It's, it's you know, it really is. I will defend it by saying, when I saw this as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, I didn't care. I just loved it. It was that wonderful space adventure on an amazing alien world. Uh, I still enjoy it. I still can watch this quite happily. I do accept that probably of all the stories on this list, it is the weaker one. It is the one that, yeah, maybe he was being a little bit mercenary and, and reusing some ideas. Can I excuse it a bit because it had been 10 years? I can. Can you excuse it a bit by saying it's the 10th anniversary and it, it, it's maybe a celebration of all that's gone before? Mm. Maybe that's a little bit um, post-hoc ergo procto hoc on my, my part. But um, look, I've said it's the weakest on the list. So, you know, okay, I'll, I'll cop that one. Not far behind, though, for me, Dave, is the next Pertwee Dalek story, Death to the Daleks. Oh, wrong! <laughs> I guess when I was young and I was reading Target novels more than I was watching shows, this seemed like it would be an amazing story, but when I actually saw it on TV, it just didn't quite live up to what I'd imagined after reading the Target novel. Maybe that's maybe the Target novel cruels it more for me more than what it actually is. Because it does try to do some new stuff. I mean, Daleks that can't fire, you know, their, their normal weapon uh, and resort to uh, regular weapons. That That's interesting, you know. Um, but on the whole, oh, I'm not so sure. I'm a fan of this one. Look, again, it's not as good as some of those classics that have come earlier in the list and they're going to come along the list shortly but once again it's terry nation not at his best but it is very good it's an alien world that he's created with their own race with a history with a religion there's a reason to be there there's all this sort of stuff that all builds and makes you feel like you are on a proper alien world with a proper alien species it's definitely got all the set pieces whether it's 
the Exelon crawling into the TARDIS after Sarah in the dark and all that stuff in the dark and the fog's really good. The rock coming down over, across the Doctor, the spaceship flying across and then the Daleks are revealed. You're right, the Daleks without their weapons, all the stuff with the root, all the stuff in the city. It's, it's an adventure. Is it the best written adventure with the best characters? No, it's not. But it's a fun adventure. Could you imagine it, though, without the Daleks? Is it a story that could work without the Daleks in it? Um, no. Interesting. I think I think the Exelons alone aren't a big enough foe. You you need that extra threat of the Daleks to really lift this one and make it work. Okay, because I've seen that that is a fan opinion out there on this episode that the Daleks are almost you know superfluous. You could argue that, but take them out and what's left? Yeah, well, it's, there's still a fair amount of story in there. You know, there, there, there is, but are, are the Exelons big enough and scary enough and powerful enough that they could carry four parts? Maybe not, but maybe they could be bumped up a bit, made, made a bit more interesting. I don't know. Well, well but, but again, maybe this is this is the point, though. You take a story with just the Exelons that wouldn't be that much chop. Take the Daleks, which just on their own maybe have been used a bit and wouldn't be that much chop. Put them together, though, and rather than getting two weak stories, you get one pretty fun story. Mm. Yeah, good point. Dave, it brings yes. us to the... <laughs> The big one on the list, Genesis of the Daleks, a story that is bigger than even its reputation, I think. It is a story that has won at least one top, has at least won a Doctor Who magazine poll in the last 20 years, is regularly in the top 10 of these polls, regularly mentioned by people as a classic. And here we see some really interesting fan discussion and it came up even when we were tweeting about this with our listeners in the last few days which is people say this story is so good i can't believe that terry nation wrote it Mm. now let me say a couple of points on that first of all we know at that stage that robert holmes basically had to do a page one rewrite of the ark in space from john lucarotti's original script Mm -hmm. we know that he had to do a page run rewrite basically of what became revenge of the cybermen from jerry davis's original casino in space script i would struggle to believe that even robert holmes as great as he was then went and did a page one rewrite of the genesis of the daleks as well i don't think that that is remotely realistic so clearly a lot of the original draft must have been terrination you look at what happens in there, and there are a lot of those Terry tropes, the way the Daleks are used, the way that it's set up. They're clearly Terry Nation tropes, and I think that's an indication that he had a very big hand in this script. Also, remember the story we discussed earlier where Terrence Dix and Barry Lett said, look, Terry, you've already sold us this story a couple of times. Why don't you go and do something new, do something really different, really original? And it was Barry Letts who said, why don't you show us the genesis of the Daleks? And I can imagine Terry Nation taking that idea and going, wow, yes, mm. that's something really new and different. And I'm really excited. Oh, they didn't invent her, so I'm going to invent the character of Davros. Oh, Davros, right. Okay, I can do this with him and I can do Scaro back to Scaro. I can imagine him being inspired by that and reaching a higher level, much more like his earlier work. Now, do I accept that Robert Holmes was the script editor? gave him a polish, added some good lines, some good moments. Absolutely. No disregard there. But I think you've got to give Terry Nation a lot of credit for Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah, I I think so too. I think there are certainly Robert Holmes flourishes in there. But Nation can write. I mean, you know, you you look at that effort on 
Blake Seven churning out all those episodes, you know, an award, not an award-winning, a record number of episodes, and you know, the 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 guy can write. So I I agree with you. I think there's some Holmes flourishes, but it's not really Holmes writing the whole thing. Uh, I'll go back to that uh, video I saw of him on YouTube again. He talked about how fans had criticised him for ruining Dalek continuity. And he has some interesting <laughs> thoughts to say about that. I'll try and I'll try and grab the uh, audio and chuck it in here. Well, you have this sort of anything goes ability when you write a science fiction script. Like, for example, uh, Genesis of the Daleks came along long after the Daleks had been introduced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've had some I've had some uh, being called over the coals for that a few times, saying <laughs> that I've messed up the entire continuity of the lifetime of the Daleks, which is not true. See, I am simply an interpreter of history and history is seen from many different viewpoints so i with new knowledge of the daleks was able to write a truer history of them and it goes back to something i kind of mentioned earlier which is that when the daleks are popular and he has to come back with a sequel he almost kind of sets the story of the daleks aside and says okay that was the daleks if they're a one-off monster I'm now going to basically start from scratch and create them as an ongoing monster. And and in that sense, I think, although we as fans, you know, it's all continuity and it all all must be part of one universe, I think for him as a writer, he did kind of put the Daleks off to one side and said, that's the one-off Daleks. Now I'm doing the ongoing Daleks. And and Genesis falls into that. Yes, yeah, agree. And look, we could do a whole episode just on Genesis, but we've got to rattle through and we arrive at another non-Dalek script from Terry Nation. Yes, this is often regarded by some as being the weak story in the classic season 13. I don't think it is. I think there's a much weaker story in here. Look, is the android invasion as good as the Seeds of Doom as the, and the Pyramids of Mars and the Terror of the Zygons? No, it's not. I, I accept that. But once again, this is a story that particularly as a kid it really gripped me. It was interesting. There was the mystery. All that stuff about the the coins all being newly minted in the same year. Then the calendar that's all the same date. Then there's Stigron that's looking through the thing. and It's just so many little set pieces that work. Once again, scratch the surface. Some of it doesn't quite, you know, work out. Like, why are the Kraals doing this? Why can't Crayford notice that he's actually got a second eye? Okay, that's fine, but it's a really good rattling story for me. It's just fun. Oh, it is. And I mean, the unit era doesn't get a particularly good send-off in it, but I don't think the story was designed to do that. In terms of location filming again, big thumbs up from me. You've got Tom just in his wonderful first bloom of being the fourth Doctor. You've got Sarah Jane. You've got... ah. You've been to that village, haven't you? East Hagborn, yes, yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. You have, yeah. Just this wonderful contemporary location where something, you know, horrible is happening. Ah, And as we talked about when we were talking about androids of Tara on our last episode, again, here, androids, you know, faceplates falling off, mechanical workings inside. I love all that stuff. I'm a sucker for it. Um, I've never had a problem with this story. And, and you can see Terry Nation's approach here a bit as well. It starts off with the mystery, and then you can, you can see him sitting there going, right, the part two cliffhanger is going to be the Doctor discovers that these are androids and Sarah's face falls off. Credits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
and in some ways, it kind of doesn't matter what happens for the 25 minutes in the lead up to that, because you get to that image and every kid in the schoolyard's going, wow, Sarah's face fell off. Like, she was an android. Wow. And does it necessarily stand up in the age of television today where everything's designed to be watched 30 times and it's layer upon layer? No, but as a cracking good yarn to watch on a Saturday night once, I reckon Android Invasion is perfect. It really is. Which brings us, Dave, as we rattle through uh, Terry's Who career to Destiny of the Daleks and Terry Nation's Destiny, I guess, with Doctor Who. Yeah, look, I'll start off by saying it is not Terry Nation's fault that Michael Wisher wasn't available and it wasn't Terry Nation's fault that his mask didn't fit David Goodison when they put it on him. That is not his fault. It is not his fault that Douglas Adams was the script editor and put a few jokes in there that maybe as serious fans we don't quite like in a Dalek story. They're great in The City of Death, mm. but we don't really like them in a Dalek story, although they are quite funny. Yeah. Um, including the Hitchhiker's reference, in fact. <laughs> um, but once again, a really engaging adventure. What's going on on Scarrow is really interesting. The references back to Genesis are really interesting. The Mervellans are a really cool creation. I think his influence in the design there, although it was taken to another level by the designer, is really good. Again, it's not the best on the list, but, you know, if this and Death to the Daleks and Planet are the weakest on the list, well, I'm okay with that being a pretty strong list, and I will happily watch Destiny of the Daleks any day. Yeah, look, it's entertaining. Tom and Lala getting about. She's in her most doctorish outfit, too. We talk about Clara being the doctor. Well, Lala was being the doctor back back in this episode. It's basically Tom's yeah. costume, just in pink. Yeah, yeah look... My biggest issue with the episode is probably, you know, this concept of the Daleks being, you know, locked in this one-for-one battle with robots almost makes them seem like robots. I don't know if that's a too long a bow to draw. But on the whole, yeah, an entertaining enough story and one that I watched, gosh, three or four years back. I hadn't seen it for a decade or more. And I thought, this is nowhere near as bad as I remember it or that the fan opinion is of it. This is, this is okay. Not great, but okay. It, it rattles along. It's got some great set pieces, something we've been saying a lot this episode. I've got a lot of time for Destiny of the Daleks. It's just a good, solid adventure. Mm. What, in your opinion, goes into a really good Doctor Who story? What has to be there? Terrific adventure, Jan, right from the off. I think it has to be uh, fear, because I think we, we have always traded a little in fear, and people hiding behind a couch to watch the, watch the show. They used to do that. Follow the Doctor is the important thing. And tremendous adversaries. He, the Doctor, is his stature is enlarged if he beats big villains. No good beating little villains. You've got to beat big villains. So the bigger and stronger they are, then the greater he becomes. So I want good, original villains, lots of danger, but most of all, a, a, a real old-fashioned story that goes from A to B to C and finally to Z that actually tells the story in good narrative form. Now, before we get to post-Who work, I guess there was some other stuff Terry worked on while he was doing Doctor Who stuff. Yeah, and look, this is stuff that perhaps we can say he was a little bit mercenary on, a little bit slack on. Um, the movies, look, we've talked about the Daleks, um, Dalek Invasion of 2150 AD, a very interesting rewrite. He takes a lot of stuff out of there. He takes the fl- slither out of there. He, he tightens a lot of stuff up. Um, but I think it's a really cracking movie. That said, the TV21 Dalek Chronicles, which is a series of comics, and, and I've got a copy of them, 
at home in the booklet that was put out in the late 90s from memory, um, the Terry Nation's Dalek book, we do know now that a lot of that was ghostwritten by David Whittaker. Mm. And David Whittaker obviously also wrote the other two Dalek stories from the 60s, uh, Power and Evil, and, and did a very good job with them as well. I think he got the Daleks. David Whittaker, I believe, also ghost wrote a lot of Terry Nation's Dalek book, which was a lovely little sort of handbook that I just lapped up again as a boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that was, I guess, the case of Terry Nation putting his name on something that perhaps was not deserved. And I, I will I will give David Whittaker that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, some, some really good work there. And I mean, there are some very interesting videos if you go looking on YouTube as to some of the uh, non-Doctor Who work that Nation was trying to put together that would feature the Daleks in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. And even that uh, Wicker's World piece where he's got the Daleks behind him in his foyer and one of them is painted red. That is a, I think, comic book design of um, livery for for that Dalek, and I think that was going to be what like the the lead Dalek in like a non Doctor Who Dalek series. So there's all this sort of interesting stuff that never really came to fruition, but there's enough known that you can really dig in and and learn a bit more about what he was wanting to do with the Daleks, and which never happened for him. No, he definitely was very keen in doing a Sierra Kingdom special space service spin-off that would have involved the Daleks, and that I think would have been quite cool. Famously, he did suggest bringing the Daleks into a big two-part end-of-season story in Season 2 of Blake 7. I believe that conversation didn't go any further than chatting to Chris Boucher and Dave Maloney and saying, hey, what if we use the Daleks as the alien invasion? <laughs> yeah, good idea, good idea, Terry. No, we're not doing that. Yeah. And it was sort of over in about 10 seconds. Um, but that's good. But when we talk about just some of his career post-Who, or well, during Who, in fact, because obviously he came back and forth, TV shows that I think most people would have heard of. He wrote 17 episodes of The Baron, 14 episodes of The Saint, 6 episodes of The Avengers, 7 episodes of The Persuaders, all big-name television that I think still has a reputation today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, The, the Saint is very well known by people. Obviously, he had that reboot with Val Kilmer back in the 90s, which, which I actually quite enjoyed. But uh, we'll put that aside for the moment. Uh, the Avengers, the Avengers is spoken of so fondly by, you know, genre fans, particularly genre fans who are into 60s stuff. Yeah. You know, the Persuaders might not be as well known, but, you know, these are some big shows for him to be writing on um, and, and significant numbers of episodes. I mean, writing 17 episodes or 14 episodes of anything is significant. Yes, and he also creates two television shows that both are very well regarded and still very much out there with with active fans the first being survivors which i uh, re-watched episode one of that a few weeks ago just given the context of all that's going on and it feels very pressing these days i've got to say <laughs> um right right down to certain countries that are mentioned i won't go into details but he, he created the survivors i think that, that starts off as a very good series famously there was a lot of creative tension there between him and terence dudley who was doing a lot of the producing work and Basically, Nation didn't have the control over that that he felt he should as the creator, and uh, that he would today. He, today he would be called the showrunner, and he would do all the writing and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And he lost control of that series, and frankly, when he did is where it gets very, very dull. Um, I, I haven't watched season three of that. I, I kind of 
got stuck in season two because it gets very, very, very dull when they just start sitting around and growing cabbages for episodes on end. Um, <laughs> whereas his episodes are really good. They're really dynamic. He has great villains. Um, I do need to watch season three, though, because I'm told it gets a bit better. He then creates Black Seven, which, look, I'm obviously a big fan of. It's probably my favourite TV show. But he does create that as effectively Terry Nation's Black Seven. He is in control of that one. Although halfway through, he does basically go off to America to start his career again and hands over to Chris Boucher, which is ironic. But so much good stuff in Black Seven. Good science fiction adventure. Uh, I look at an episode like Pressure Point, which isn't the greatest script where all works together, not necessarily, but there's some great character moments and just so many awesome set pieces. You look at the first episode of Black Seven, The Way Back, that is some of the best 50 minutes of television ever written. Given the time, given the time to write a script well, and when he's really excited about a script, like he is with the first episode of this, it just shows how well Terry Nation can write. And that's why I do think he wrote a lot of Genesis of the Daleks. When he, when he had the time and the inspiration and really put himself into it, I think he could write really, really well, and Blake Seven proves that. Yeah, that that first episode of Blake Seven is quite extraordinary. It, it's dark, gritty, uh, adult. Uh, it, it's innovative, almost, imaginative. Yeah, it's almost it's almost head and shoulders above anything that comes after. You know, on the whole, in that series. <laughs> It, it does stand up still as one of the best episodes of the show, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the second episode, Spacefall as well, which I, I think is, is is equally as good. And I know um, my, my colleague Richard on the Blake 7 podcast it says it's one of his favourite episodes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, does Terry Nation's writing struggle a bit when he's trying to put out 13 episodes in about 13 weeks? Absolutely. There's a couple of episodes later in season one that are dire um hello bounty or attack of the space arabs as we 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 tend to know it um but when he gets back to season two where he's only writing a few of them redemption great adventure great location pressure point one of my favorite episodes this uh countdown Uh, look i mean you know we talk about terrination tropes he has an episode called countdown (laughs) but that's that's a really a good episode um again to reference spacefall a blake seven podcast rich and i called that template blake seven like just everything that Blake Seven does really, really, really well. Yeah, yeah. In one episode. In one episode, yeah. So uh, a lot of a lot of good there. And look, I'll put a plug in here if you are a fan of Blake Seven and you're not listening to Space Fall of Blake Seven podcast. We're just at the end of season two now, so a good time to step on board. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, to to sum up, Terry Nation. What what can we say? I think. I mean, I, I was the indifferent... Well, not the indifferent one, but certainly sort of ambivalent towards him. So maybe I'll go first. I think I've warmed to Nation a little over this conversation. I think even more over the last few years. And it's primarily through his work on Blake 7, you know, and, and being aware of what he achieved on Survivors because Survivors is something I haven't actually watched, but I like the premise. And I've, I've heard the horror stories about what it turns into, but the earlier stuff, you know, I can see that he can create things on his own. And I think in general, he's more than he's made out to be. I also think he's funnier and more likable than maybe what I originally assumed when I'd watched the Wicker's World stuff and thinking mm, he's a bit of a wanker here with his jag and, you know, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> seeing this US interview footage of him, I think it's from a PBS station, 
he seems quite candid. He seems quite honest. Like that question about the, the Daleks and the Nazis. Uh, it's been said that because you grew up in England during World War II that uh, the Nazis, Nazism, had some influence in the type of characters that you come up with for your villains. Yeah, I've, I've heard this too, and indeed I've, I've probably contributed to it. I always I wonder whether it is after the event or before. I don't know. I certainly think that once I was aware of it, once, if I had been unconsciously aware of it when I wrote it, the moment I was consciously aware, I was able to go on writing the Daleks in exactly the same way. So, so maybe there is some truth in it. If, if that was a modern showrunner today, they'd say, oh, yes, I had that all planned out from the start. You know, please, you notice that, you know, and, and, and basically lie, you know, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and he doesn't do that at all. He's like, oh, well, maybe that was sort of there in my thinking, but I'm not really sure. You know, I don't know what really influenced the other, you know, and it's such an honest, candid answer. I think, oh, is this guy quite what I think he is? Maybe he's not. And yes, I have been warming to him over the years, the most recent few years, in fact. But that sort of initial, you know, first impressions count. And it's that initial sort of view of him that I had being a bit of a wanker and sort of doing Ray Kuzik out of some money and all of that. And I, I'm still fighting against that a little bit, I think. Yeah, look, I'm really pleased to hear you say that, Rob, because I think that's a very fair summation I started this podcast, I said, with a deliberate agenda, and I framed my comments in a, in a deliberate way to defend and perhaps call for some revision on Terry Nation's reputation. I don't believe I'm going to have persuaded people entirely on this, but if I've given them some pause for thought or maybe added some extra context that does allow them to warm a bit to Terry Nation, that, that will be very pleasing. But my real final comment is I look down, once again, this list of 11 Doctor Who stories I would put any one of these on and watch them, and I think they are all, at the very least, imaginative and exciting adventures mm. in time and space, and that's that to me is Doctor Who. And if your legacy to Doctor Who is 11 watchable, fun adventures, you know what? That's a pretty good legacy, and I reckon he deserves to be up there with one of the greats. Yeah. I wonder if it'll ever happen, or are we getting so far away from that era that newer fans aren't as invested in him, perhaps, or want to dig deeper? Look, it may happen that newer fans who are discovering Classic Who for the first time and don't come with all the baggage that we had of, of the, the, you know, what we've, I guess, started to call the, the wanker Nation reputation. Hmm. If you don't come with that baggage and you just watch these stories, you might go, gee, this Terry Nation turns out some great stories. He's pretty good. Maybe yeah. that's how it'll happen. Maybe. Anyway, that wraps up Terry Nation, and we move into the final stage of the show, Dave. We've got a listener uh, email, which yes. I'd like to read. This is from David Clark. He says, Hiya, guys. Update on classic Doctor Who. My wife is now fully on board on this quest, and we have just finished watching Ambassadors of Death with my Doctor, the third. A quick mention of the second Doctor. I'm 54 and hadn't seen much of Patrick's era, but wow, he was brilliant. And with his last companions, Jamie and Zoe, I think we had the perfect team. Chippers should watch and remind himself of what the Doctor is all about. Anyway, keep up the brilliant show from Dave. Thank you very much, Dave, for that update. We did ask you to send an update, so thank you for, for doing that. And look, I'm very envious that you just got to watch Ambassadors of Death because I love that story. 
Oh, it's a great story. And the the Troughton era too. I wish we would find some more episodes of his. Yeah, look, anything with Troughton, he makes it watchable. Even the worst Patrick Troughton scripts, there's a couple of real clunkers in there. Troughton is never anything other than watchable. Yeah, agree there. Now, look, before we get on to what we're going to do next month, I thought I'd just talk briefly about things I've just watched or are planning to watch. And if you've got any thoughts, Dave, you can dive in too. I've currently just finished watching Westworld. That finished a few weeks ago. Season three of Westworld was interesting, but it was increasingly going off the rails from where we started with Westworld. So there were things to like about it, things I didn't like about it. I'm a bit iffy about it. On the whole, though, okay. I'm currently watching Final Space on Netflix, which is the second series of that. Now, it's been out for ages, but I just hadn't caught up on it. This is a cartoon that is very funny, very irreverent, but also has very deep and meaningful moments as well. It's a weird mix of things. Also has David Tennant doing one of the voices. Okay, I've not heard of that at all, I've got to say. Yeah, it's uh, it's an acquired taste, but once you've got it, it's it's a really odd mix of... Um, humour and just some really tragic sort of stuff as well uh, okay. I, won't, I won't go too much into that one uh, speaking of tragic stuff though the final series of 13 Reasons Why is on the horizon and I'll certainly be watching that I'm sure you will too uh, yes I will there's two series that have got uh, new seasons coming out in the next couple of weeks 13 Reasons Why has its fourth and final season which look I'm looking forward to I think although both seasons two and three dragged a bit in the start, and I think they both should have been 10 episodes, not 13. Mm. They both ended in places of me going, no, I want more. And uh, yeah. they're, they're giving us more one last time, and I think the premise for this season looks really interesting. Uh, the Politician, starring Ben Platt, has got season two coming out next week as well, so I'm very keen for that. I have just finished watching The Great, mm-hmm. which is a... Um, It's a series about the life of Catherine the Great that says very much in the opening it's kind of very broadly based on history, but not really. Um, And it just sort of imagines, you know, Peter III and Catherine the Great and what the court would have been like in Russia. It is totally irreverent, irreverent, um, quite quite gruesome in some places, the the comedy. Um, Very funny, very engaging. and, And I got a lot of fun out of that, even though it's, you know, historically just complete nonsense, but... It doesn't pretend to be other. other. Mm. Um, the other thing that I've found myself doing, and I kind of started by accident, is I've been doing a Babylon 5 rewatch. I'm up to episode one of season four now. Wow. And I've got to say, I have really, really enjoyed doing this. It's the first time I've done a proper lengthy rewatch of the whole thing. You know, occasionally I'll dip into a couple of episodes here and there or watch a little bit of arc stuff here and there, but... It's been years since I've done a proper rewatch of it, and there are some episodes that I remember being great, and yeah, they maybe perhaps haven't aged that well, and others that are just I'm watching again is going, this is still just amazing. Mm. Particularly as you start to get into series three, there's just some great writing in there. Question without notice: Should they remake Babylon Five? No, and my answer is the same as when you ask: Should they remake Blake Seven? I think that shows like that are successful because everything works at once you've got the correct writer producer set of actors etc 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 and if you don't have that you just can't capture the same lightning in the bottle and i think that you try making babylon 5 without 
Peter Jurassic, and without Andres Katsoulis, without Jerry Doyle, and you know, why would you? Mm. Why would you? Yep, yep, completely agree with you there. Uh, that just brings us to what we're going to do next month, Dave. We're going to talk companions who span two doctors. And before all you people out there think, oh, there's not many of them, there's actually quite a few in the classic era. It's only the Trout and the Pertwee era that doesn't have that going on. That's right. So this came out of a conversation we had just about how a particular character, we won't spoil who it was, kind of changes incredibly because they go from one Doctor Zero to another. And we thought, that's actually worth exploring. And, 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 and yeah, as you just said, we sort of thought, oh, there's, actually, there's probably a couple. Like, oh, there's them. And, oh, there's her. And oh, there's them. And mm. oh, there's all there's all of those ones. And so we actually thought there's a bit of a topic in here. How, how do these companions transition from one doctor to the other do they work better with one doctor and not with another or vice versa yeah there's a lot to talk about um possibly we get to talk about some great stories so mm-hmm. companions who cross doctors is next month that's it but until then i've been rob and i've been dave we'll see you next time on the doctor who show goodbye bye-bye you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.